Um, this says, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me, to the churches of Galatia. Grace to you in peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is one another one, but there are some who, tr who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you receive, let him be accursed. For I am now seeking the for am I not seeking the approval of man or of God, or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Um, if y'all bow your heads, I'll pray real quick. Dear Lord, thank you so much for allowing us to come together for this first RUF of the semester. I thank you for allowing us to be able to use this space to worship you all together and um, come together as a body of Christ as college students. And all this is in right here. Amen. All right. Let's try this. Um, okay. Can you all hear me well? Perfect. Uh, thank you all for being here tonight. Seriously. And I just want to repeat a little bit of what John Henry said. We are a ministry not for uh, just a particular person, uh, not just a particular faith. We're a ministry where you can come and uh, whether you're convinced of the Christian faith or not, where you can come and consider the truth of Jesus. So we're glad you're here. And uh, what we usually do, because we believe that God's word is actually the power behind what he's doing in this world, is we usually try to preach or teach from the scriptures uh, just straight up. We look at the Bible and go through a book, and we try to figure out what God is saying to us even in this moment today. So this fall, we're going to be looking at the New Testament book of Galatians, as Emma just read for us. And Galatians is a really interesting book. Um, if you were to read the other epistles, you would probably see our, the epistles are, are letters that the Apostle Paul wrote. Uh, there's 13 of them in total. If you were to read all the other ones, you would be like, oh, Paul's like a pretty nice guy. But if you read Galatians, you would be like, oh, my gosh, this guy is going off on these people. It is an aggressive book. He pulls no punches. Uh, the only way I thought to describe this letter is it's like an intervention. So I don't know if y'all are uh, old like me and know of like the old show Intervention. Uh, it was on A&E when I was growing up. It was kind of popular. It was a show where people would uh, try to get their loved ones to go to rehab. So they would gather and try to intervene in their lives and try to convince them like you need help. You're addicted. Um, you really need to get your act together. And there was an episode that stuck out to me because like most of the normal interventions you would, you would assume uh, were like drinking or drugs. But there was an episode that I watched and I remember distinctly of a guy named Peter. Uh, and Peter was addicted to video games. Uh, and you're, you might be like, yeah, like I'm addicted to video games too. I don't do any homework or whatever. But like you're in college. Peter never left his house. Uh, Peter played video games 12 hours a day. It was pretty impressive. He broke the record for most consecutive hours playing Dance Dance Revolution, uh, 24 hours straight. I was trying to imagine. I was like, when he put his head on the pillow after that, you think he was like, man, I did it. 
I accomplished something really great today. Um, but it's interesting, the episode, because it's a really frustrating episode. Peter's got his family who loves him. Peter has an actually attractive girl who like wants to date him. And you want to shake him and be like, dude, what are you doing? You're giving all of this up for video games. I honestly think that frustration is a little bit of what Paul is feeling in this moment. As he looks back at this church that he planted years before, he's looking at them and he's getting word that they have abandoned the gospel of Jesus Christ and they're turning to something much less effective for their freedom, for their joy, for their satisfaction. And he wants to shake them like I want to shake Peter and be like, dude, why are y'all spending all this time on Dance Dance Revolution when you have a girl who likes you and a family who loves you? That's what Paul is saying here. So we're going to look at what Paul is so upset about uh, by looking at the gospel. So we're going to try to understand it in three different points. Those points are on y'all's sheet. So understanding our problem, understanding our God, and understanding our battle. Uh, so this first point, I want y'all to hang in there. This one's the long one. And then the second two points are a little shorter. But we're going to dive into this one. Understanding our problem. So RUF already told you, we actually believe that God's word is true. And uh, that we should interpret our lives based on what it says and not what we think. And the Bible sets definitely in our modern world, a pretty controversial claim before us. It says that all of the dysfunction in this world, all of the dysfunction in our lives, all of the frustration that we have in our relationships, in our families, in our relationships, I said that two times, um, is not because we're just bad luck, we have bad luck, or there are bad circumstances, or everything's just left up to chance. It actually says that all of the dysfunction in the world is reduced down to one problem. The problem of sin. Sin caused the divide between creation and God. And as a result, the whole world has fallen. And if you look in verse 4, it was sin, not bad circumstances or bad luck, that Jesus came to give himself for. He came to deliver us from. And uh, I don't know y'all's church background, but before y'all roll your eyes and be like, oh my gosh, another preacher that's just going to like beat me over the head with sin. Uh, I want y'all to hang on. Because one of the reasons I love Galatians is actually because I think it redefines how we think, how we ordinarily think about the sin. Like for us in the Bible Belt, I think the most common way we think about sin is if, if you went back and read Paul's other letter, First, uh, first and Second Corinthians, we think about sin like the, the sins they were dealing with. In uh, the church in Corinth, they were dealing with drunkenness. They were dealing with like really messed up sexual ethics. They were dealing with like total debauchery and divisiveness. And we're like, those things are sin. And as long as we avoid those, we're good. As long as we stay safe in the college life and, you know, button up our lives, we're good. But it's funny. Uh, Paul's most angry and aggressive book is actually against the sin of Galatians. And the, the sin that the Galatians were committing was not being crazy and partying. It was actually they were being too religious. They were being too religious. We'll talk more about this as we go along in this series. But after Paul planted this church many years before, what happened was he left. He kept going on his missionary journeys. And then these other teachers came in, these really buttoned up, official looking teachers, uh, people like me that try to act like I have it all together. And they came into this church and they wanted power over these people. And they were these Jewish Christians that came into this church that was only Greek Christians, not used to all these Jewish customs and Jewish holidays. And they were saying, look, Paul had it partly right. You know, if you're a Christian, you need to be saved by grace through faith. 
But you know, you need a little other thing. You need to, you need to start following these, these rules, these Jewish customs. If you really want to have peace with God, if you want to have peace in your life and peace of conscience, then you need to start getting your act together. And you might think, like, why is this bad? Like, if we're going to stray on the side of the, the crazy person going nuts, doing all the, like, very outward sins, or if we're going to stray on the side of being too religious, like, surely Paul would be less upset about this side and more upset about these people. But he's not. And we have to ask why. Why is he not? Because what Paul understands is really the biblical definition of sin. And he understands how pervasive it can be, even for the sins of self-righteousness, even for the sins of being too religious. So we have to ask ourselves, what is sin? Uh, If we go all the way back to the first part of the Bible, Genesis 3, we see the story of Adam and Eve. Um, And when the story of Adam and Eve happened, we kind of all know, or some of us know, if you don't know, that's great. Um, I'd love to teach you. But Adam and Eve, the first sin that ever came into mankind, we... They, they ate the apple, um, or they ate the fruit. Maybe it was an apple. I don't know. Do you all have theories about what it was? Uh, maybe it was an apple, whatever. They ate the fruit from a tree of knowledge and good and evil, and uh, then sin came into the world. The fall came. God's consequences came. And we often think of sin as them eating the fruit from the tree. And I, I actually don't think that's true. Because when we think of sin as just eating the fruit from the tree, we actually just think, oh, any little guilty pleasure is sin. And we all know our guilty pleasures. We all know those things we feel guilty after. But in reality, what Paul understands is that the sin was not them actually eating the fruit. The sin happened much before that. It happened when they thought to themselves, you know what? I can manage my life. I can manage my happiness, my satisfaction apart from dependence on God. I can get my act together. You know, we often think that too. That we can handle ourselves, that we can get our act together. And if sin is just this small thing that really like has no power over us, if we just had a little more willpower, we could defeat it. Look at verse four. Would this really be what God would do in response to our sin. If sin was something we could manage, is there any reason that Paul would say that Jesus Christ gave himself for your sin to deliver you from it? Meaning, if sin was manageable, why did Jesus have to give himself to deliver you from it? If you could deliver yourself from it, what's the point of the gospel? In fact, the New Testament really defines sin not as this little things that we do, these little guilty pleasures that we struggle with. Sin defines, or the New Testament defines sin as who we are. Jesus says in John 8, 34, and it's sobering to think about this. He says, whoever sins is actually a slave to sin. Meaning whether you're the most buttoned up religious looking folk or whether you're a total mess, all of us, to some degree, are trying to manage our lives and we're failing miserably. I know this well because I'm a sinner and I have no ability to manage my life. Just like a blind person can't fix our sight, just like a dead person can't fix um, or can't make themselves alive, just like an old Miss fan can't make themselves be happy and optimistic about the result of the season, they always know it's going to fall and it's going to crash and burn. We can't make ourselves alive. Y'all, that's true. I was talking to so many Ole Miss baseball fans, and they were like, just wait. We're going to lose it. We're going to lose. Just wait. 
can't be happy. I can't just enjoy good things. Um, so I want to address a little bit of a rebuttal to this before we move on. Because what I'm saying here can be pretty controversial, especially in our world today. What I'm telling us is that our sin is unmanageable, that we're unable to improve ourselves and handle it. And the rebuttal I would often hear, um, even by other well-meaning Christians, is that, um, you know, I, I, I just don't believe that. That's, that's not realistic. I believe that everyone is essentially good, and if we tried hard enough, if we got our act together, we could love people, we could love God, and we could really, like, follow Jesus. But just because something sounds good doesn't mean it's true. So we have to ask ourselves, is sin really manageable? And I was thinking about uh, myself in college, especially myself now even. But I want you all to think about this. How often do you all replace uh, a toxic habit with just another toxic habit? So I'm thinking to myself, like in college, I was in that scene, the very obvious, like sinful scene. And then I was like, you know what? I'm going to try to get my act together. I'm going to become super, super religious. I'm going to try to manage my life. And then I thought to myself about six months later of trying to get my act together. And I was like, am I really happier? Am I really more satisfied? Am I really more at peace than I was before I gave all that up? The answer was no. Because what I was doing was I was trying to manage my life. I was trying to manage my life apart from saying, maybe I'm just needy. Maybe I just need grace and forgiveness. Maybe I just need to cry out to God. I don't know if y'all are there, whether it's you're using uh, religion, whether it's you're using a certain scene, whether it's you're using a relationship or um, you're pursuing a body image that, you know, makes you think you have a hold on your life. But I actually think a big view of sin frees us up. And the reason I say this is because if you have a big view of sin, then that means you are free to admit that you're not okay. That means you're free to admit that you feel lost, that you feel lonely, that you feel insecure, that you feel dissatisfied. It frees yourself up to admit that you just really don't have a handle on things. And do you all realize with the big view of sin, and if Jesus is the one that handles our sin, that's all he's asking us to do. That Jesus isn't looking at us saying, get your act together. What he's saying is, you know, you can cry out. Which brings me to my next point. The two shorter points, understanding our God. Uh, I mentioned earlier that Galatians is like a really confrontational book. Uh, if you were in the church that was first reading it, most likely a guy got up on the stage and got, he was like, I got a letter from Paul. Let's see what he's up to. And by the time they got to verse six, I'm sure everybody was like, oh my gosh, like stomachs were sinking. They knew they were in for trouble because verse six honestly should have like exclamation marks around it. Paul should, Paul's saying, I'm astonished. He really is saying, like, are you serious? Like, I was looking at Peter um, playing all those video games. Like, are you serious? And what he's so upset about is this thing called the gospel that he finds so dear, that he finds so, um, that he finds so uh, important to these people's experience of life. If you look at verse 6 through 9, Paul uses the word gospel four different times. He's saying, look, you've abandoned the gospel. You've turned to a different gospel. He even makes like these side comments like, but there's no other gospel. Not to say that. And then he curses them twice. Like he's literally cursing the people that are teaching this other gospel. 
Now, I know I'm aware that I'm not bringing like new knowledge to the table when I say like the gospel is the most important thing to the Christian life. Uh, but how often do we just get used to throwing around the word gospel without actually taking to heart what it means, what it offers us? When I got to Ole Miss, um, I'd always been interested about like why people say hotty toddy. So I was trying to learn all the history of the university and I was like, hey, why do you say hotty toddy? And everybody's like, nobody knows why we say howdy toddy. Like, it's just, we just say it. And I was like, supposed to, supposed to just be like, okay, yeah, that makes sense. Um, I honestly think a lot of times, especially in our culture, that's kind of how we treat the gospel. Yeah, the gospel's true. Yeah, I believe it. But do we really know what it means? Paul is making sure that we don't mistake the definition of the gospel. Literally translated, what the gospel means in the original language this was written, it means good news. So we have to make sense of that. Good news is different than good advice. Good news is different than a little instruction manual on how to get your life together. Good news is different from a five-step moral program so that you can restore your self-confidence and have a good reputation with others in God. Good news is an announcement about something that has happened, something that you didn't do, but you're called to take notice. You might even be called to participate in it. Uh, I, had a, I was with a friend the other day in his car and uh, his son, his young son called him and was like, dad, they are putting walls on the Waffle House in Oxford. Uh, I know y'all been waiting for the Waffle House for quite some time, especially you seniors. It's coming. And uh, this, the son was so excited because he grew up in Oxford. He's been waiting and waiting. He was so excited that he like, couldn't contain all his plans for how he was going to enjoy the Waffle House. He was like, Dad, on Saturdays in the fall, I'm going to ride my bike to the Waffle House. I'm going to get two waffles. I'm going to come back home and watch football. It's going to be amazing. And the dad was like, yeah, sure. Like, that's awesome. Go for it. Uh, that's the power of good news. That's something he didn't do. He didn't build. Became something he got to participate in. Now, how do you think his reaction would have been, this seven-year-old kid, if instead of Waffle House announcing they were coming, they sent him a letter in the mail, and when he found the letter in the mail, it was just an instruction manual on how to like build a Waffle House? Like, he would be crushed. He can't build the Waffle House. He wouldn't know how to do it. He wouldn't know where to start. And even if he found out how to do it in the instruction manual, he wouldn't have the money. What, do I, what am I getting at? The gospel is good news. It's not another way, another good advice, another good self-help book. It's good news about something that God has done and is inviting us to participate in. Look back to verse four. It's really the main verse. It's kind of the start of Paul's whole letter. This is the gospel in a sentence. He says that Jesus Christ gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this evil age. When you're asking yourself at night, when you feel worthless, when you feel exhausted, when you feel lonely, when you feel a lot of shame for who you are, what you're doing, or what you're not doing, what you can take to the bank, if you believe, is that when God saw your problem of sin, when he sees you in the very condition that you're in right now, that he doesn't relate to you with good advice. It's an instruction manual. What God does is he gives himself. In the person of Jesus Christ, he came to be with us. 
On the cross, he came to bear the burden, the weight, the consequences of our sin. And in his resurrection, he actually offers us free access to peace with him, to peace with ourselves, to enjoyment of this creation instead of it being a burden of performance. Paul ends uh, in verse 4. He calls God our Father. I think that's so, so sweet. Um, for those of us who had good fathers, we know um, that the ideal, and if you didn't, the ideal father, though, we know is one who relates to their kid not with uh, demands, but with love. That, that a father that would do anything to deliver them from the trouble they got themselves into. Now, why does this matter? We'll kind of end with this point. Understanding our battle. So the invitation of this passage uh, is to reimagine the Christian life. I don't know if it's been drilled in your head that the Christian life is just another way to improve yourself or to prove yourself or to perform. But what this passage is really saying is that the Christian life is more about believing that you don't have to prove yourself than actually proving yourself. That's the battle that we face. And I was thinking about this. I was like, isn't it crazy that like I have a, such a hard time believing this is true? Like if this is true, if the gospel is true, that means I don't have to wake up and be insecure about myself. I don't have to wake up and be disappointed by how unproductive my day was. I don't have to think back to that conversation I had and like self-criticize myself that I didn't look cool or that I said the wrong thing. If the gospel is true, that means my security is based on what somebody else did, Jesus. And I just get to enjoy it. But the thing is, like, it's so obvious that this is better, and yet I'm so oblivious to the fact that I can take advantage of it. As I grow older, um, I, I, I'm just, like, amazed by my inability to see that God loves me and that he doesn't relate to me according to my ability to, like, be impressive uh, or get my act together, that he actually just loves me and that he relates to me according to what Jesus has done and not what I'm doing. And that's what Galatians 1 is really an invitation to, to reimagine the Christian life, to not reverse the gospel. That word in verse 7 where he says people are distorting the gospel, it means to reverse it. So instead of thinking that God loves me and therefore I get to enjoy him and I get to participate and I even get to obey him, when we reverse the gospel, it says, I have to obey him. I have to, have, I have to enjoy him. I have to always feel it. And then, and only then, does he love me. And do you see how much of a burden this is? This is how we relate to every other, every other community in our life, isn't it? We have to prove ourselves until we get accepted. And what does that do? It exhausts us. It puts the burden all on us to be okay with ourselves, to be okay with others, to be okay with God. But if we reverse, or if we don't reverse the gospel, then that means there's freedom. There's freedom to be broken, but there's also freedom to actually obey. Um, there's freedom to enjoy the beauty of Jesus and not the pressure of always trying to perform for him. I'll end with this story. Um, there was a tragic story a few years ago that came out. Uh, Kelly Catlin. She was a 23-year-old cyclist, uh, Olympic medalist, and she uh, tragically took her own life uh, at the age of 23. There was a story that came out uh, about Kelly's sister. She was a triplet, and they were just reflecting on her life. And, and these, the article was really trying to make sense. Like, she had everything going for her. What, what happened? And her sister talked about, like, how driven Kelly was to succeed. 
And that when they were growing up, uh, their parents instilled this idea, uh, this theory, this, this American dream that like, if you just work hard enough, you can do it. You can get your act together or you can, you can achieve whatever you want. And Kelly was great. She achieved a lot. But her sister also admitted that she struggled with a profound fear of failure. She had imposter syndrome. She was always anxious that she was going to not be enough. And her sister decided to write this letter, or this note, really, to put it on her casket before she was buried. And it kind of wrecked me, like, that she, she wanted Kelly to know something before um, she was gone. She said this uh, on, the, on the note. It said, I love you without all your accomplishments. Um, I love you without all your accomplishments. For some of y'all, this is your first week in college. Like, y'all are anxious, y'all are nervous. It, it's just our instinct and sin to think the burden of performance is all on us. And I get that. You're scared of failing. You're scared of maybe uh, if you're a Christian, like leaving Jesus and uh, being left by Jesus. Or if you're not a Christian, maybe you're just scared you're not going to fit in or you're going to fail or you're going to become a mess. The gospel is tr- if the gospel is true, that means Jesus loves you and that your approval and that your identity is rooted in his performance and not yours. Which means... It's okay to fail, but also Jesus loves you without all your accomplishments. Some of y'all have been in college um, for a while. You're well acquainted with your failures. Uh, And some of y'all are well acquainted with your successes. And you might be exhausted by your failures or anxious that your successes are not good enough. Jesus loves you despite your failures, but he also loves you without all your accomplishments. That's the invitation to actually embrace that. That's an invitation to have the freedom uh, from trying to manage our life. And really the battle is not getting our act together. The battle is believing that. And that's the invitation we have in this passage tonight. So let me pray for us and the worship band will come back up. Father, we thank you uh, that in Christ you are not asking us uh, to relate to you according to our performance, but you have chosen in love to relate to us according to your grace and mercy. Um, we don't deserve that. It's hard to admit that we aren't deserving because we're so prideful. But man, is it free. Uh, help us tonight. Help the student who um, feels like they're not good enough. Help the student that feels like they have to be good enough. Help us know that your love is what we long for and that it's freely available in Jesus. Give us faith. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.